Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for the opportunity to come and study. We ask for the outpouring of your spirit to enlighten us and draw us close to you. Help us discern where you're leading and we can be lights in this world at this uh, time in history so that the world can be lighted with your glory and we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson six in the uh, quarterly uh, Isaiah and the title is Playing God. And uh, the lesson uh, doesn't usually have humor in it. But this week, it starts out with a little bit of humor. And in Sabbath's lesson, it says, After a minister preached a ser- searching sermon on pride, a woman who had heard the sermon waited on him and told him that she had much distress of mind and that she would like to confess a great sin. The minister asked uh, her what the sin was. She answered, uh, The sin of pride, for I sat for an hour before my mirror some days uh, some days ago admiring my beauty. And, uh, oh, responded the minister, That's not a sin of pride. That's a sin of imagination. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we don't have humor in the lesson too often. <laughs> but that was funny. I had to share that with you. <laughs> but the sin of deception, yes, okay. So let's look at Sunday's lesson. And the lesson will focus our attention on Babylon. Why will the lesson focus our attention on Babylon? What does Babylon represent in Scripture? What? Confusion is a common, uh, a common interpretation. That's very common. Yes, I, I would not dispute that. What, but, but is that the reason we get focused on it? Because it, it, it it's confusion? False God constructs. False God constructs. Okay, so we're going a different direction now, but that can be confusing. Not disconnected, but a little bit help emphasis difference. What's the, what's the? The enemy's kingdom. Okay, the enemy's kingdom. Now I like that even more. Uh, because what is the central thread, central theme of the of the Old Testament scriptures? Starts in Genesis three, after the fall of Adam and Eve. Coming Messiah. The coming Messiah is the central theme, a, a, a Messiah's promise. The entire Old Testament scripture is the story of God fulfilling His promise to bring Messiah. Without Messiah, it's all irrelevant. Everything's irrelevant without Messiah. And and what you see how unfolding, and that's where the focus of the scripture is. The f- scripture focuses where it focuses because it's the unfolding plan of God for the coming Messiah. So that's why we don't focus on the Chinese people or the American Indian people. Messiah didn't come through them. Messiah came through the family of Abraham, and we didn't focus on Esau's children. We focused on Jacob's children. We didn't focus on all of Jacob's children. If you remember, ten of those tribes got taken away at this period of time. They're about to be assimilated into the Assyrians and dissipated and gone. We, but we focus on Judah all the way down to the time of Jesus. The, the, the focus keeps narrowing through history until the Messiah comes. This is a central thread. And with that in mind, then the people of Israel represent, and Jerusalem, represent God's plan of salvation being worked out. And these nations that pop up in history pop up because they're connecting to or interacting with or relating to Israel, dealing with the plan of salvation. So Babylon, as Wendell said, represents Satan's kingdom in Scripture, warring against Jerusalem, God's kingdom, God's people, the plan of salvation. That's the focus through the, through the scripture. And this is why um, we see Babylon highlighted also in Bible prophecy, because it becomes symbol- not just a literal kingdom that actually did enslave some of the people, but it represents Satan's kingdom warring against God's people through time. 
And if you look at Babylon in Bible prophecy, here are some descriptors of Babylon from Revelation. Uh, 17 verse 5, we'll read first. Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes or harlots, and the abomination of the earth. And then Revelation 18, 2 through 4. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become the home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adultery. Some say the intoxicating wine of her adulteries. Uh, the kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, out of Babylon, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive her plagues. Why is Babylon a symbol of the detestable system? We see in history, what I just said, the, the central thread, we see other nations also attacking and warring against Israel and Jerusalem. We see the, the Hittites, the Philistines, the Assyrians. We see other nations also being used by Satan to try and destroy the, the, uh, the, the genetic line, the family tree, if you will, the avenue through which Messiah will come. Why aren't they picked? Why is Babylon picked by God to represent. And so you should be asking, okay, they all tacked, they all were used to try and destroy. But what is different about Babylon? Well, there's another nation that does come up in Bible symbolism that also represents Satan's kingdom. That's Egypt. Egypt also represents, you see at Revelation 11.8. What's different about Babylon and Egypt? Both represent Satan's power. Babylon represents Satan's kingdom. Egypt represents Satan's kingdom. But Babylon is the one we just read about, not Egypt. How is Egypt different from Babylon? And why is Babylon the mother of harlots rather than Egypt be the mother of harlots? Well, what is a harlot in Bible symbolism? Or a prostitute in Bible symbolism? What does that symbolically describe? An unfaithful person, right, who defiles themselves or corrupts themselves spiritually with other lovers. That's what it represents, yes or no? Okay. Think of what is represented by the imagery of a harlot. And I'm not trying to be too graphic here. It's the Bible imagery. The harlot is intimate with people, not her spouse, she lets others enter her and deposit their seed. The harlot represents those people who are intimate with gods other than Jesus and allows them into their most sacred circles of their heart to deposit their seeds of distortion, lies, falsehoods into them. That's, that's, those are the harlots. And this is why the Bible symbolism of a harlot, why, why is, uh, and, and Babylon also has something that confuses the thinking of people, something they get intoxicated upon that Egypt doesn't have. Egypt is not described as having the world become intoxicated on his wine. Babylon is the mother of harlots and intoxicates the world on his wine. What is the wine? Wine, when you get intoxicated on it, Confuses your thinking, 
impairs your judgment and makes you feel good. That's what wine does when you get intoxicated on it. Something that Babylon spreads, and it's another way of ingesting. When you ingest, you get something inside you. And, and something they spread gets inside people and confuses their thinking, impairs their judgment, but makes them feel good. Wasn't Babylon one of the first nation states that married church and state? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar passed a decree that the true God should be worshipped, but we're going to put that into no, law. You're, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. If you look, focus on that difference between Egypt and Babylon that I'm trying to help you see, both Egypt and Babylon held the Hebrew people as slaves. Both of them did. But what was the big difference? It's not that they were enslaved by Babylon or because they were also enslaved by Egypt. Egypt was led by Pharaoh who denied God. Who is God that I should know him? Babylon, what Russell just said, was led by Nebuchadnezzar who initially denied God. But in the first four or five chapters of Daniel, you discover he comes to believe God and believe that Daniel's God is the only true God. So we have a system that denies God versus a system who proclaims faith in God. Now consider the sin of adultery, which is the harlots. Can you commit adultery against someone? In other words, betray a, 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 a trust, a relationship. Can you commit adultery against someone you have never known? If that didn't make sense the way I worded it, can you cheat on a wife if you've never married? No, you can't cheat on a wife if you've never married. You can't commit adultery against someone you've never known. Who is God that I should know him? Egypt is not a harlot. Babylon, this is God, and yet we now betray that relationship by embracing Satan's view of God and let those seeds into the heart. So Egypt doesn't represent the harlot. It represents those who never knew God, those who've never had a relationship with him. Uh, it represents evolutionism, secularism, humanism, communism, these types of systems. Godlessness represented by Egypt, also king of the south. Babylon represents those who accept God but then betray him by... What else is unique about Babylon? Russell was already on top of it. And if you understand what's so unique about it, how is it Babylon then commits adultery with all the nations of the world, all the nations of the world, remember the mother of harlots, all the nations of the world, and all God's people are caught up in Babylon and need to come out of it. So how does it do it? Of the various nations that we just listed that war against Babylon, Hittites, Assyrians, etc., Babylon is the first nation to create a legal code, the Code of Hammurabi. In other words, Babylon is the first of these abusing nations to most accurately represent Satan's law and government. Imperial law, made-up rules, imposed enforcement. Babylon. 
Satan's kingdom. It's not just confusion. It's imperialism. See it for what it is. And exactly what he said, after Nebuchadnezzar converts, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He passes a law that everyone must honor Daniel's God under threat of punishment. He immediately betrays God's kingdom. He immediately fornicates. He immediately commits adultery. He immediately gives his heart after his pagan gods. The imposed worldview as a means of justice is the wine that intoxicates the world. The Code of Hammurabi was enacted at the behest and the authority of the gods or their god. It's how God operates. It's enforced through the will of God, by the power of God. You couldn't have power in your state to force your way if your God didn't make you most powerful. In God we trust. So Babylon represents those who claim to worship God but betray their creator God and instead give their love, affection, and hearts to an imperial dictator who makes up rules like humans do and must use power to inflict punishment on sin and requires legal payments to pay for sin. This false view will ultimately lead to the formation of the beast of revelation that will seek social justice through human governments. Is that where this system started, the imperialistic? So Satan, in the opening of the Great Controversy, Satan declared the law of God could not be obeyed. And if that uh, man should sin, uh, he could not be uh, forgiven. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. It began in heaven with Satan's um, um, deceit to the angels and then spread to earth. But the actual codification uh, of law began with Babylon and the Code of Hammurabi, and then ultimately the system of merging um, um, moral uh, morality and, and uh, enforcement of religious dogma is what Nebuchadnezzar set up. But it doesn't have to be religion. Again, uh, the Beast of Revelation may not come religiously. It will come morally. It will have seeking moral social justice. The beast of Revelation is not going to come saying we're here to turn more people into Satan worshipers. We want to set up more pagan temples. We want more uh, child sacrifice. We want more pornography. It's not going to come with any of that. It's going to come with something that the people will say, yes, that's right, that's just, we need to do that. Uh, we need to have economic justice so we don't have haves and have-nots. We need to have environmental justice so we save the planet. We have to save lives. We have to protect people. But the method of pursuing it will be through Babylon. Legislation, enforcement, punishment. You can't buy or sell. You can't travel freely. You can't assemble freely. You can't speak freely. You can't dissent because you are against the system, the beast. You're against, you're, you're a super spreader. You don't take seriously. You're trying to kill people. You should be silenced. You don't see it happening with the whole COVID thing? It is a setup for the next step.
Recently, I received in the mail this book. Uh, I don't know who sent it, so if, if any of you sent it, thank you. Uh, I don't know who sent it. It just came from Amazon with no note or anything. And it's uh, entitled The Subversion of Christianity by Jacques Ellul. And uh, he is a French uh, individual, born in 1912, died in 1994. This book was published in 1986. I say that so you understand it was not written around the events happening today. I won't read all of it. It's, it's quite insightful. It's also, be warned, highly academic. So it's very, 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 very um, tedious in some ways to read, but very insightful. And I've, I, 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 it's been a long time since I've read a book that I felt I was learning something on every page. And so uh, this, this book is, is, is like that for me. And you can see I've got like almost every page, uh, I've got something highlighted on. Uh, that I'm learning something about. It's, it's quite great. Um, this particular fellow, um, was, um, the, um, he, he was, uh, part of the, uh, French resistance, Nazi Germany during World War II. And from 1946 to 1980, professor of history and sociology, institute, uh, in the faculty of law and economics, and held a chair in the Institute of Political Studies and the Reformed Church of France, which were the heir of the Huguenots. So he's, he's, he's a really interesting guy. But I'm going to read some things out of this book regarding this idea of, you know, what I've just shared with you, this historian, and he's describing how, uh, how Christianity became subverted. And ultimately, I'm going to kind of connect it back to what the harlots look like, and, and he describes it in an interesting way. So uh, this is the I'm reading from his book. The popes use laws to fight the corruption of the clergy. The church uses organization in its fight for unity. The church's reaction to the encounter of immorality, uh, its immense attempt to enforce law and morality, and its reply to loose conduct in the ethical field is closely connected with the error of confusing church and society. In other words, they don't make a distinction between the world at large and the church, and the goal here, let's make people moral by making more laws. The perversion then was that of making the gospel into law. Amen. The mistake was dealing with these on the moral and legal plane instead of following the example of Paul, who always works through the moral question to the spiritual question. The spiritual meaning changing the heart. That's what the spiritual means. Rather than conforming behavior, passing laws to make people to be moral, that is not the focus of the Bible. The focus of the Bible are changing hearts. Okay, that's what he's saying here, the spiritual question, which gets back to the essence of the revelation of Christ. And from this derives some models of conduct that are the, that are consistent with faith and love. In other words, when you have faith and love in your heart, you behave differently. But it comes from faith and love in the heart, not from a moral code. The church did not do this. Get back to the spiritual, he says. It thus set itself on the same level as the world and treated moral matters on a moral plane. This is how the beast is going to come. Moral right, justice, social morality through more law, more enforcement. Continuing on with his, from his book. Catholic Christianity became the state religion and, and an exchange takes place. The church is invested with political power and it invests the emperor, talking about Constantine here, with religious power. We have to say very forcefully that we see here the perversion of revelation by participation in politics. 
and by the seeking of power. Revelation meaning God's revealed will in scripture, the truth and how reality works gets perverted when you seek to politically reform society through human governments and legislation. The church lets itself be seduced, invaded, dominated by the ease with which it can now spread the gospel by force and use its influence to make the state too Christian. It is great acquiescence to the temptation of Jesus himself, to the temptation Jesus himself resisted. In other words, they gave in, acquiescence, gave in. It is a great give in to the temptation Jesus himself resisted. For when Satan offers to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, Jesus refuses, but the church accepts, not realizing from whom it is receiving the kingdoms. Christianity became the state religion. It is frightening to see how easily the church accepts all this. Hardly had it emerged from persecution before it itself began to persecute. And why did it persecute? It passed laws on how you behave and who you must worship. And if you don't do it, then we must punish evil. Sin has to be punished. Imperialism, Satan's lie, Babylon. The church is a political power, but it is always at the service of the political power that is either in place or is in the course of being instilled. In other words, the church acts politically, but it is always morphing itself based on the nations around and the political changes in the nations around to maintain its political power. So uh, with that idea, he continues. It will be Republican under a republic, as it is monarchist under a monarchy. Irrefutable theological arguments are always found to support these views. A monarchical regime reflects the monarchical unity of God. Monarch means a monarch. Okay? The monarchical unity of God. A republic reflects the people of God that God elects for himself on earth. Democracy shows that God associates himself with the will of the people. The tradition was already well established in the 6th century when the idea formulated that the acts of God in history were performed through the Franks. The church could then become national socialist, the German Christians, when Hitler came to power. It could become communist with the notorious figures like Bereski and Hormand, I can't even say the name, in communist countries. Each time it develops a theological argument to show that the power that has been set up is good. Once the church is read, once the church is read to associate with instituted power, it is obliged to associate with all and sundry forms of the state. When the church becomes socialist in the support of socialist regime, it may stress the theological themes of poverty and justice to justify its socialist uh, support of the socialist regime. The church's fault is to be found in the process of, of justifying political power and action. Do you see this happening? It sounds exactly like prostitution. Yes, that's what that's. So, so did you see here described all of these different ways the church is Republican, the church is socialist, the church is Democrat, the church is national, uh, German church, whatever that was. In other words, these are all the little harlots. 
These are all the daughters of the big harlot. Because the big harlot, Babylon, is imperial law. And when you accept imperial law and you teach a theology in which God uh, makes up law and then God has to punish sin, then all the human governments operate like that. And we just keep adapting to the local government because God only empowers a local government. So if you're ruling, you must be empowered by God. It's God's will. All the little harlots. And theologically goes on and describes uh, how there's a whole chapter in there on morality and how the Bible does not teach morality. Morality, a code of what's right and wrong. It's immoral for women to uh, walk around without their, um, without their face covered. That's a moral prescription in certain cultures. It's immoral for women to wear pants in some cultures. That's a moral code. And he goes on to describe how more, that the church in the New Testament and the Bible does not describe morality. It describes spiritual transformation and regeneration by writing the law where? In your heart and minds. It's quite profound. Tremendous insights in this book. Do you see the historical pro- progression away from design law? that Jesus taught, and you look back in the parables, go back to, if you haven't read on our website, the, uh, the, um, the blog that I wrote on the parables of Jesus. Every parable of Jesus teaches design law, every one of them. There's not one that teaches imposed law. They, in fact, every one of them overthrows imposed law. It's how reality works. Truth, love, and freedom. God restores it in the heart. Do you see how this is exchanged for a system of imposed rules to conform behavior, a moral code code enforced externally. This is Satan's world, Satan's system of imposed law, and the church embraces it and intoxicates the entire world on this wine that impairs your judgment because you can't actually decide what's right and wrong when you're operating on a false system of right and wrong. Your judgments are wrong, but it makes you feel good. Because all your sins have been paid and they've been erased from the books in heaven. And when you get to heaven, no one will know the record of your wicked deeds because they've all been erased and you have legal pardon stamped by your name and you'll be declared to be righteous even though you're still wicked and unrighteous. You can feel good while your judgment is completely impaired and you're intoxicated. And this has infected every church, including the Adventist church, is infected with this wine. That's why we're called to get back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. Fountains of water. Come back to designer worship. Worship our creator. Understand how reality works. Participate in the the rejuvenation and the renewal of your hearts. So Egypt, so Babylon represents the harlot and the mother of harlots and all the little daughter harlots, which are all these various formations of theological and national systems that operate on imperial law and churches and religions that believe in God. We believe in God, but we're going to practice the methods of the state. We have a hierarchy that will rule and will set rules for conduct. We'll enforce those. We'll join with the states to make sure that our society practices the morality that we think is right. That's Babylon. And you see the whole world is talking. But we also have Egypt. Egypt is those who deny God. They haven't betrayed him. They haven't committed adultery because they have no relationship with him. 
the evolutionist, the agnostic, the atheist, the socialist, the humanist, the communist. King of the South, King of the North. Understand Satan's big grand strategy that he plays. His big grand strategy is he puts two teams on the ball field. Both are his team. And he gets you to join one. Gets you to join one. Leftism, King of the South. We're going to pursue our moral, moral uh, agenda. And, uh, and you understand leftism is, you may still find people who believe in God over there, but it is not the party of the godly. Those who really, that party is, is based on godlessness, evolutionism, secularism, humanism, socialism that leads to communism. That's what leftism is based on. There may be people who believe in God because they like certain things that are promoted over there, but that is not the party that actually espouses belief in God. Rightism is the party of Babylon, king of the north. These are the people who claim a belief in God like Nebuchadnezzar and may be sincere like Nebuchadnezzar in his belief in God, but betrays loyalty to God by investing that belief with Satan's principles, methods, and kingdoms and practices through the state trying to make their, their system work. And so these two sides pit against each other. And notice Satan always ends up with conflict. Always. Never unity. Never harmony. It's always one side fighting against the other. God's people are primarily found in Babylon. Because that's where you have the declared belief in God over here. We believe in, but they're, but they're called out. Stop embracing this imperial, penal, substitution, legal lie wine that impairs your judgment, but makes you feel good. You had a comment. So because he has both teams, Satan, that's how the whole world wonders after him. Yes, the whole world wonders they after the beast. They all have to believe in God, but they're all wondering after his ways. That's right. They all practice his ways. The whole world. And uh, God's people are called out of Babylon. And specifically not into Egypt. Not into Egypt. Out of Babylon. That's right. And if you go back and look at the king of the north, king of the south, Daniel 11, the beautiful land is caught in the middle between the battle of the kings in the north and south. They keep battling back and forth. And the, beautiful, and the beautiful land represents God's people. They're in the middle of the battle. We're caught up in this battle. But we're to come out of it and not side with either of Satan's worldly systems. And he will tempt you by, by putting before you some righteous... Righteous meaning it is right to pursue. Some righteous goal. But tempt you to join one of the teams that practice his methods in getting there. Particularly, getting the right political party, right justices, right uh, elected officials, right legislative, right laws passed, right coercion, right enforcement, right police forcing, whatever. It's, it's We're going to use the system of the beast to make society right. Called out of that. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 describe Lucifer's rebellion in heaven with his desire to ascend to the throne of God. Consider that. Consider that description. How is it that God is above angels and humans and any other intelligent life? How is it that God is above them? Did he climb up over them? So how is it he's above them? How? It's true. He's a creator. 
Okay, I'm not disputing anything you said, but I'm, I'm looking for a specific reason he's above them. Because he's the life giver. He is the life giver, that's a fact. Trust. By his nature. He is an infinite being. By his nature, by his substance, by what God is, he is separate and distinct and infinitely above all created things. It is true he created them. It is true he's a life giver. Those are facts and it's true. And, and they imply and they reveal those realities that I'm saying. But he's above by reality. He really is above. Yes, no? Yes. By his substance, by his nature, by what he is. That's why he's above. He's above all others. Lucifer. Is Lucifer above all others by his nature? No. Get your mind around that. So when Lucifer seeks to ascend above, that's exactly right. He's trying to climb over and get above. And how can that be achieved if he doesn't, in his nature, exist already above? Then how is it possible for someone who's not by nature above others, how can they get above others then? Well, lies are a mechanism, yep. For sure. Eliminate them. Create doubts. Create doubts. All these things are mechanisms, yep. Yep, so you're right. Okay, so lies, we tricking them to believe that he is somehow above when he's not. So the creating the lies that separate him above. So that would be a mechanism for sure. And that's a mechanism frequently used. Declaration without evidence. Declaration without evidence. Oh, that's good. Declaring he's above. Having all of his media pundits declare it too. Have anybody who would say, no, you're not above, deplatformed, and your media account's taken down. Can also declare another being is not by nature infinite. That's right. And then... These declarations and proclamations are simply that. And then you, if you have the ability to make up rules, you could make up rules that make distinctions. I, uh, the law is that I have a divine right. You, uh, because I'm, because I have royal blood and, and you do not have a divine right because you're a commoner. Think that through history, folks. And because I have divine rights, because I have royal blood, and, uh, you know, that's just a declaration, but then I uh, use a parchment and I write it down and I codify it in some type of a legal document uh, that gives me rights to own all this land, and you're a commoner and you're not equal to me. You can't own land. Yes. So basically, uh, the process of creating uh, of imperial law is the way to abuse nature by itself. It's, yeah, imperial law is a denial of how reality works. So basically, this is how he abuses the nature by itself. This is the best way to become above it if you are not above by nature. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So notice the notice the, the contrast, though, when we look at Jesus and God's kingdom. Philippians chapter 2. Christ Jesus, who being the very nature, in very nature, being in very nature God. Jesus is by nature above. So the scripture says, by nature. 
Not by fiat, not by declaration, not by legislation, not by appointment, by nature. He's God. Being the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very uh, nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all other names. God exalted him because he didn't already have that nature, or he was already by nature God. And he revealed and demonstrated God's method. What is God's method here? Notice the contrast. Satan's method, he has by nature no different. But he claims to be supreme and tries to climb over others to make himself better. Jesus, who is by nature over all others, humbles himself and sacrifices himself. So Satan's method, a few ruling elites, will rise and climb over others and exploit the masses, taking and taxing and making them slave or work for them in order to keep them elevated in their position of privilege. God's position, being actually supreme by nature, he gives of himself, sacrificing, humbling himself in order to build up and lift up the masses. Do you see the exact opposite methodologies? And you look at the history of the world. All the kingdoms of the world are whose? Satan took Jesus to the mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and offered them to him. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So all the kingdoms of the world throughout history, look at them, how they work. They're Satan's. A few ruling elites rise over and exploit the masses. The pharaohs of Egypt, the emperors of China and Japan, the kings of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the kings and queens of the nation states of Europe. Every system. One government tried. It arose with lamb-like horns. It was still a beast, still part of Satan's kingdom. But it tried to put it on itself lamb-like, Jesus-like principles. I don't want to be beastly. I want to be lamb-like. So I will give freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, and freedom of assembly, and freedom of speech. I, I will try to practice methods where we take power from the ruling elites and we give power to the masses, the people. But even though it rises with lamb-like horns, it will speak with all the power of the dragon before it. Those lamb-like principles will be eviscerated from this country. Have been. And you will see liberties completely taken away. And if you haven't been watching during COVID, but we've got to save lives. We've got to save lives. Am I making anybody uncomfortable? No. Can you see it? Yes. Yes. Good. We've got a responsibility. God is raising a people up at this time in history who will glorify him by no longer, by coming out of Babylon, rejecting the not just the penal substitution infection in the church, but reject the entire movement of social justice through human governments. You can't get there. You might think you can. You cannot. Any legislation you pass to bring more social justice will benefit some and disenfranchise and injure others. You will only create a new hurt class. 
which will only cause them to organize, if you get enough of them hurt, to have their own political party or political action committee, which will only cause them to act and retaliate with their own new actions, will only then empower or privilege them and hurt another group. It's Satan's kingdom. It's perpetual conflict, never-ending. But we can feel good. We're intoxicated because it's right to get the right laws passed and get the right judges in and stop this injustice. We'll feel good. Why our judgment is completely corrupted. The power over others system is Satan's world, Satan's kingdom, and is Babylon, the mother of harlots, who prostitute themselves with the merchants of the world. Think that through. You're not seeing the merchants of the world right now prostituting themselves with certain nation states because they have the cheap labor force and they have the billions of dollars that they're uh, investing in these different uh, industries. Uh, I, I'm not mentioning names, but if you have any clue what's happening in the world, it's pretty obvious over the last year who the merchants of the world sided with when the COVID virus came. In fact, why do we call it COVID? Exactly. COVID stands for Corona, C-O, Virus, Disease, 2019. COVID-19. Corona, there's a whole bunch of Corona. Common colds are Coronas. This is just a particular type of Corona. But historically, before this event, these things were always named for where they where it arose. West Nile virus. Zika virus. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Spanish Influenza. Spanish Influenza. And on and on it goes. And for about three or four weeks, it was Wuhan virus. But a certain nation state didn't like that and began using its political and economic capital to influence its puppets in the world. To And then if you would suggest it is a China virus or a Wuhan virus... You're a racist. You're a divider. You're not a uniter. You're a hater. Because we must prostitute ourselves with the nations of the world. So Babylon, the mother of harlots, Egypt, the kingdom that represents those who deny God, China, North Korea, both sides pitted against each other. Choose a side, either one. You're still in Satan's kingdom. God's people are called to come out of Babylon, leave the systems of imposed law with their imposed penalties, stop seeking to achieve social justice with more laws, more rules, more punishments, seek justice by loving every person like God loves you. I could have a whole lecture on just the corruption of seeking justice through social programs of the government, how it corrupts God's plan for social justice. God calls for us to take care of the homeless and the poor and the needy and the orphan and the widow. He calls for us to do it. But if you use his method, it's always relational. People helping people. When you do it through taxation and and then um, governmental agencies, you remove the actual love of person to person. We don't love each other anymore. When you help another person, you grow as you practice altruistic methods. You come to care for people. You get to know them. They're important to you. You make bonds. And if you're taxed and your taxes go to pay, you can um, be intoxicated and feel like you're really helping those poor people down the street. Or, or you might resent it. 
and be angry for it. But there's no connection made. There's no love flowing. And those who receive the help, when you've been helped by somebody who you know they didn't have to do it, they wanted to do it, it has an impact on you personally. Multiple different ways it can impact you depending on the circumstances and the reasons, but typically it inspires you. It inspires you to work to advantage yourself so you will stop having to um, be helped by others if that's possible to recover. It inspires you to be thankful, to seek to be a helper of others, to imitate that behavior. The devil's way, it destroys all that. Ellen White wrote about how the, um, the, the medical ministry is the right hand of the gospel. And she wasn't talking about a Medicaid card. <laughs> That's good. She wasn't, folks. You give people a Medicaid card where they can get free health care, you are not advancing the gospel. Am I, did I just say I'm against free health care? I did not say that. I, that's a completely different question. What I'm saying is when you take the medical minister out, the person who goes to help somebody and restore them to health and teach them godly principles for health or living, which is design law stuff, you take out love, you take out a connection, you take out a representative, you take out an opportunity to share God's kingdom with somebody. When you give them a Medicaid card and they go to the local clinic and they get their prescription and they go get a fill at the pharmacy and they go home and take it, have you ministered the gospel to anybody? I'm just showing you how Satan corrupts. Somebody is going to hear this and say, so you don't want poor people to have medical care. They're going to say it. You wait, I'm going to get some emails about it. The things that I say and people twist. It's unbelievable the things that I get. I did not say that. Sunday's lesson asked us to read Isaiah 13. And I hope you've done it because we're not going to do it here in class today. It's too long. But it, it goes into some very, very, um, let's uh, say, direct words from the prophet, uh, representing God, threatening words at times, uh, uh, describing threatenings, wrath, consequences of war, Babylon and the Medes conquering and the killing and the suffering that happens. And in the bottom green section of the lesson, it has a whole long list of questions, and I want to go through those with you. Here's the question from the lesson. Why does a loving God do these things and allow these things to happen, um, the threatenings that are there, or allow the wars to happen? Certainly some innocents will suffer. Wouldn't they? How do we understand this action of God? In other words, innocent children or infants being harmed by war. Why does God allow this to happen or even cause it to happen, depending on your view? Well, what's the first question we ask when we try to answer questions like this? What law lens are you looking through? If you have the imposed law lens, this Babylon, if you're drinking the wine of Babylon, you will read this and your judgment will be impaired and you will be completely confused and you will be intoxicated and you will um, come up with some system that, uh, that well, because justice requires sin has to be punished and thank you, Jesus, for taking my sins and being punished in my place and and uh, and I, ha- I feel good now knowing that, the, uh, that I won't be punished in the end. So under the law lens, though, this idea of, of innocent, if you have the imposed law lens, who's an innocent? Imposed law. The innocent are those who've not done any personal wrong. So the infant, an infant is innocent. They haven't done anything wrong yet. Isn't that how you have traditionally looked at it? Well, they've done nothing wrong. They don't deserve that. They didn't do anything wrong. Have you had that kind of idea go through your mind more than once in life? This is the idea of the innocent through the imposed law lens. 
Under design law lens, though, innocent means something different. It's not about deeds. It's about state of being. Innocent means if you're really innocent, you're not infected with sin. There's no carnal nature. You don't have any fear and selfishness operating in your heart. In other words, you're not dying of a terminal condition. Now, which is more accurate regarding infants born since Adam sinned? They're born innocent or they're born terminal? Terminal. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity, the Bible says, Psalms 51. We're born with a condition. Now, it's true we didn't choose it. We didn't choose the condition. But when you understand design law, it doesn't matter whether you chose it or not. HIV-infected man and woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected. Well, baby didn't do anything wrong. Okay, I guess they don't have it then. They're good. Well, no, they still got it. Okay? So the question of innocent is a false focus because it leads you down that behavior line. It leads you down the wine of Babylon. It leads you down the, the do's and the don'ts. It leads you down the morality code that you get bad stuff happening because you did bad and you deserve bad. You get good stuff because you did good and you deserve good. No, baby born HIV infected didn't do a thing, but it still has a condition. That's every human being since Adam and Eve. Get your mind around this. No humans in history other than Adam and Eve chose to be sinners. Only Adam and Eve chose to be sinners. Everybody else was born a sinner. And we, through Christ, get the privilege of choosing to be cured of it. To be reborn, to be renewed, to be healed of it. It's a big difference. Okay? If infants have this terminal sin condition and God doesn't do anything in history, after Adam and Eve sins, he lets things unfold, but there is no Messiah promise. Jesus never comes and never will come. What happens to every infant? Every human being. What happens to every human being? Every human. Not one human saved, okay? Get your mind around this idea of innocent infant dying. Every human dies without Jesus. 100%. Not one is saved. Including Enoch and Elijah and Moses. Yeah, their, their salvation Old Testament is, own, is evidence that Jesus succeeds when he finally comes. Because they're saved by Jesus just like we are. Some get confused with that because you're trying to understand an infinite God through a finite mind. You're trying to apply God's activity through your linear ability. You exist in the flow of time. You operate from one moment to the next. When Jesus became incarnate, he entered linear time, and for 33 and a half years, he flowed through that linear time just like we do. But God, who is infinite and created time, lives outside of time. He does it. All points uh, uh, in time are accessible to God equally at all times. Yeah, so, yeah. So Jesus, when he comes, so, so get your mind around that. If no remedy to the condition exists anywhere in time, God can't apply it to anyone. But once Jesus succeeds in his 33 year, 33 and a half year life, and he ascends and he has the remedy, God, who lives outside of time, can apply it anywhere in time. So Enoch's salvation, Elijah's salvation, Moses' salvation are evidences, in fact, that Jesus will succeed when he comes. Yes. The applying sounds very uh, kind of legal. Like you apply a rule towards something. Can you elaborate on what, how does God apply? When you apply a salve, do you, is that a legal thing? When you apply a salve to a wound? When you apply a Band-Aid to a, to a laceration, is that a, is that a legal thing? But the, the application isn't done en masse. It, the application is how does that application happen? 
You said God applies it. Yes, so he applies it into the hearts and minds. So Enoch, Elijah, Moses uh, received the victory of Christ, so it's no longer they that live, but Christ lives in them. They got a new heart and right spirit. The law is written in the inner man, same as all of us, through the victories of Christ applied into their hearts. It's not a legal application. It's an actual application. So why does the loving God threaten? So why does a loving God threaten? Why do loving parents threaten to spank a child who's playing in the street? Out of love. Now, in the child's mind, get your mind around this. This will help you understand Old Testament. In the child's mind, they're threatened with spanking if they play in the street, and you say to the four-year-old, what's wrong with playing in the street? I'll get a spanking. So in the child, so notice the loving parent. Now, now you as an adult, is the real problem playing in the street that uh, the spanking, is that the real problem? Or is the real problem breaking the laws of physics when their little body gets hit by a car and laws of health? Design laws. That's the real problem. But little child can't understand reality, doesn't understand the danger, doesn't appreciate it's going to be destructive to them. So parent steps between them, between them and reality, and takes upon their shoulders for a period of time the viewpoint in the child's mind that the parent is the inflictor of the pain. The parent's not the inflictor of the pain. The parent's not the inflictor of the problem. But in the child's mind, it's bad to play in the street because mommy or daddy will punish. But when you grow up and you look back and you go, wow, what love my parents had for me. And they were never my enemy. They were never the problem. They were protecting me from what would happen for me breaking the laws of health or physics by playing in the street and getting hit by a car. This is the whole Old Testament. When you see God thundering and threatening, they don't know what happens when you worship a golden calf and have an orgy because that's what they saw happening in Egypt. They don't know that you see your conscience warp your character, harden your heart, corrupt your soul. They don't know they're going over a cliff to self-destruction. So God thunders. But Moses is there, just like the older brother who's 17, telling the four-year-old, you don't need to be afraid of mom and dad. Uh, Exodus 20, 20, you don't need to be afraid when God thunders. Are you kidding me? The whole mountain just shook. I saw lightning. What do you mean you don't need to be afraid? He'll get you. Okay, hope you grow up soon. Sadly, that view has been perpetuated through what? Babylon. When you have the imposed law view, justice required. And this is what you hear. It's in this lesson and this lesson all the time. With the imposed law view, if wrong is done, justice requires what? Punishment. Because if you don't punish the lawbreaker, there's no justice. That is Babylon. That's the wine. That's the what breaks your judgment. That's what corrupts. That's what severs the connection with God. We're called out of that. Okay, keep on with the uh, the green at the end. It says, what should these texts and all the texts in the Bible that talk about God's anger and wrath against sin and evil tell us about the egregious nature of sin and evil? Well, I really like how they said, and all the texts in the Bible, unquote. Because that's exactly how you should handle. When you read Isaiah 13 and hear the wrath and the threatening and so forth, you should go and you should bring all the texts about God's anger and wrath to bear on your understanding of that. And when you do, you will understand that God is angry at sin. Like doctors are angry at disease. And God will use every power and agency in his arsenal to eradicate and destroy sin. 
like doctors eradicate and destroy viruses and bacteria in order to save the sinner or patient. Doctors are not angry at their sick patients. They're angry at disease, if you want to use that model. However, if you have a patient who refuses the remedy that will cure them, won't take it, won't take it, won't take it, won't take it, what's the only loving thing the doctor can do? Continue to offer, continue to offer, continue to offer, but eventually let them reap what they have chosen, which is death at the hands of the doctor? No, it's what unremedied disease does and what unremedied sin does. Sin kills. And thus God's wrath in the end is letting people go. And Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter um, 1, verses 18 through 30. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then in verse 24, uh, 28 and, and 30, he says, and therefore God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave, because, they, because they didn't take it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. They preferred images made with their own hands. Therefore, God gave them up to reap what happens when you violate God's law. And that's God's wrath. He lets them go. Yes. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap correction. So what you're describing in Isaiah 13 is whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's his chastening method, Isaiah 13. is just an example. Yeah, that's exactly right. Continuing on with the lesson questions, isn't the mere fact that God, that God, excuse me, isn't the mere fact that a God of love would respond this way enough evidence to show us how bad sin is? And the answer to that question to me is no. The evidence of how bad sin is, is what sin actually does. It's direct evidence. You see what sin does? That shows how bad it is. It's, uh, God's response to it is evidence of his character of love. And how, and how deeply he loves and how passionate he is for his people that he responds the way he did, including sending his son. Part of his response, they want the response to be, he's mad, he's angry. No. For God so loved the world, he gave his, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His response to sin shows his character, which is to unfold and carry out the plan of salvation is the response, not to get angry and upset. Does that make sense? Sin itself shows how destructive it is. Next next portion. Uh, we have to remember that this is Jesus speaking these warnings through Isaiah, the same Jesus who forgave, healed, pleaded with, and admonished sinners to repent. In your own mind, how have you come to understand this aspect of a loving God's character? Ask yourself this question as well. Could not this wrath actually stem from his love? If so, how so? Or look at it from another perspective, that of the cross, where Jesus himself, bearing the sins of the world, suffered worse than any of anyone else ever has suffered even those innocents who suffered because of the sins of the nations. How does the suffering of Christ on the cross help answer these difficult questions? What law lens are you looking through? I think God's wrath does stem from his love when you understand his wrath is letting go. What's the only loving action a person can take if they want to act in harmony with love and somebody insists on leaving them? If you love somebody and they insist on leaving you, what's the only action that love can take after pleading and after maybe even having envoys or intercessors come to beg your case, but they still insist on leaving you, what's the only action of love can take? So God's wrath, letting go, is an evidence of his love. That's true. 
But that's not, I think, how they see wrath. I think they see wrath as using power to hurt. That's a lie. That's the imperial law model. It's not design law. It's not the reality of the gospel. And implied in the text is that God, God made Christ suffer. Yes, and yes, that's implied. So, so what does it mean that Christ bore the sins of the world? What law model? Under the, if we accept Satan's view, Babylon's view, then sins are bad deeds. And Jesus, being our sin bearer, has to have all the acts or bad deeds of sin committed by every person throughout all history, past, present, and future, placed upon Jesus, piled up really high. And then God has to inflict punishment for every one of those on his son so that justice can be served. And thus Jesus suffered worse than everybody because he was punished for every sin ever committed. You understand how corrupt this is? It's so perverse. And if any thinking person would engage their reasoning power and, and stop being intoxicated on the wine of Babylon, in other words, step out of this idea that that's how law works, you just ask some questions. So if, in fact, the more sins that people have committed means that more of them get piled on Jesus, which means it caused him to suffer more, then if we reduce the number of sins, that means there's less deeds put on him, which means he's punished less, which means he suffers less. So all the abortions committed prevent babies from being born. They never live sinful lives, and they never commit trillions and trillions of sins that never get put on Jesus, so we're helping reduce his suffering. Or Stalin and Hitler, who killed 100 million people between them, shortening their lives. And by shortening their lives, of course, it was the one act of sin to murder them. That's one act. But then all those lives didn't commit sins. There's trillions and trillions more sins that didn't commit that, that are not put on Jesus. We've again, uh, Stalin and Hitler helped reduce the suffering of Jesus. Do you see how corrupt this idea is? It's so ridiculous to any thinking person. And it's all based on a imposed law lie, the wine of Babylon, that intoxicates you because I will tell you, the people who believe this can't answer these questions and they won't answer these questions. And so what they'll do instead is they will say, well, we just take that on faith. Or they get angry. Or, or they get angry, but we, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't, uh, you know, any, this type of thing. In other words, they have impaired judgment, just like it says in Revelation. Their judgment's impaired because they won't think, they won't reason, they won't look at evidence. Because they've drank the wine. We know because they accepted the premise. Yes, the law is imposed, and yes, justice requires punishment, and yes, Jesus is our substitute, and yes, Jesus is our means of salvation. Well, that's true, but under the legal model, that means he had, if you, if you don't punish, there's no justice, it has to be. You're undermining the law. When you accept design law, you understand that Jesus became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Or the Lamb of God, which takes away the punishment of the world? No, the sin of the world. He did not come to have all the deeds of history put upon him. He came as the second Adam to pick up humanity, damaged and broken by what Adam did to it, and to take the carnal or sinful condition upon himself, overcome and restore in humanity God's perfect righteousness, to be tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin. And by exercising his human brain, not his divine powers, divinity cannot be tempted, James 1, as a human being, 
He was tempted in every way just like we are. And exercising his human brain, he chose to harmonize with God's design law perfectly, restoring God's law back into the temple where it was always designed to be the temple of humanity. Adam and Eve were created as the pinnacle of creation to be the the repository of God's living law. Understand God's law is not a code like Satan says. Satan can't create. He writes rules. God creates, and his law are living principles. And they could only be fully seen in living beings. And Adam and Eve were created as the pinnacle where the living law of God was reposited in them to be lived out by them. And that's why Satan attacked them to corrupt them and put his corrupting principles in. And Jesus came as the second Adam, as our substitute, to eradicate fear and selfishness out of the heart and restore God's perfect design of love, truth, freedom back into the humanity. Unless he becomes the second Adam. He is not the second Tim Jennings. He is the second Adam, the second head of the species. And all who identify him, he's the vine, we're the branches. We connect to him, and the Spirit takes his victory and reproduces it in us. We get new heart, new motive, new desires. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. All the metaphors are transformational, recreational. This is the spiritual renewal that the, the gospel message brings to people, and it is only achieved in a personal relation with Jesus Christ. It's never achieved through legislation. Luke 2.34, I read this morning in The Remedy, and it's that this child's purpose and mission is to cause the downfall of selfishness and the rising up of love in those who overcome through God's power and to be the supreme evidence of God's character of love. Thank you for sharing that. So I want to finish up with this last point about did he suffer more than any other person? And then we'll close. Did he suffer more than any other person? If you have the imposed law model... Then you depict him as Mel Gibson did in his movie with all this horrible, gross, physical torture because suffering is physical infliction by an external authority. That's the suffering. And if you uh, accept that model, Jesus clearly did not suffer more than any human in history. There are many people who have been tortured for days and even weeks uh, physically longer than Jesus was physically tortured. So this is, this is fraudulent on its face that if, that Jesus suffered more if we keep it focused on the physical. But it's not fraudulent that he suffered more if you go with design law. Because if you go with design law, you understand a greater reality. And that the greater suffering from Christ was not physical. It was the mental, emotional anguish that he experienced when a certain thing happened to him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus is an infinite being who has an infinite relationship with his Father of infinite love and infinite intimacy. And at the cross, that was fractured and severed for a brief period of time. I just want you to get your mind around this idea. How painful would it be for you if you were told today that you would never get to see or speak with Vladimir Putin again? How much would you suffer tonight knowing that, that we just made that rule? You can never see him or speak to him again. How, how, would, you, would you be distressed? Sleep like a baby. You wouldn't care. You don't know him. You have no relationship. But how about if you were told you could never see or speak ever again for all eternity with your own child or your spouse? Would that cause suffering and anguish? You see, 
That is the reality of the suffering. He experienced the breakup of an infant. And so we can never appreciate the level of the suffering. We're not infinite beings. We can't appreciate how infinite was that loss and the agony to his soul as that union was broken and fractured. And this union and, and, and fracturing was not an infliction of punishment from the Father. This is the imposed law model. Yes, we had to do this to punish him. Got to make him suffer. Not at all. It was the only means whereby God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit could jointly achieve their joint mission and outcome. And what's their joint mission and outcome? Eradicate sin from the species human and restore God's living law back into the species human. Jesus is the means where heaven connects to the species again. And in Jesus, he has to be tempted in every way just like we are. And he has to overcome through trust and love. Ultimately, the greatest threat is not to your house, taking your house or your dog or your cat. Your greatest threat ultimately is threatening your life. That's where selfishness rises up the most strongly. Survival drives. Jesus, and you see the threat over and over again. And so Jesus is tempted to save himself over and over again. And he can only overcome that by facing it. And no one takes my life. I will give it freely. And so... Just as he couldn't be there for Lazarus to die, because had he been there, the life giver would have prevented Lazarus' death, Jesus could not die if the Father doesn't let go. So they jointly cooperated for the achievement of Christ's human victory over the infection of fear and selfishness. This was not an infliction, nor was it a punishment. It was a cooperative effort to achieve the victory in our behalf, and thus he becomes a new head of humanity. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for what you have achieved and what you have revealed and how your kingdom runs. Boy, the wine of Babylon has certainly intoxicated the whole world. And, and Lord, we, we, have, uh, we have participated. We've been part of that system, Lord. We were raised in it. But, Lord, we don't want to be part of it anymore. You've called us out and we ask that your spirit will come and restore in us your living law, that we can be true lights in this world and give us the wisdom and discernment and capacity to be able to articulate these truths effectively, to reach the hearts and minds of others who are also innocently caught up in the system and think they're pursuing righteousness or justice when they are practicing methods contrary to your kingdom. May your people be empowered. May the world be lighted and may you come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.